Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two quan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who were very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Tarun, the GigaBrain and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. Then today, special guest, we've got Lawrence, the smart contract cyber sleuth. And then you've got myself, I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So uh, we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Lawrence, welcome to the show. We have you here in under, somewhat inauspicious circumstances because there's been a lot of mayhem going on in DeFi, and we thought you were just the guy to help us decipher everything that's going on. I'm not sure there's been a day in this quarter that would qualify as an auspicious day to appear on a podcast, and just, to be honest with you. There was, one day, there was one day when Ripple went up a lot that I thought was oh, an auspicious yeah, day. Yeah. The, rest of them, the rest of them have been pretty crappy. Actually, you know, I think um, for the audience who might not know, uh, Lawrence himself has dealt with creating a protocol that has had a attack. And so maybe a bit of history on your experience would be good for the listeners edification. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. So um, in 2001, I worked as a contributor to a protocol called index finance. The idea was there was that you could model like index funds using balancer LPs or, or forker balancer LPs. They were attacked um, in October of 2021 using a, um, it was a flash loan attack combined with some some overflowing of um, some sushi tokens into a particular pool. It's honestly, it's been a year and a half now, and so the details are starting to slip from me. But like I, all this to say, I know what it's like to to be on the other side of that, and you know, to kind of pick through things as they happen. It's uh, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And now you've been, I think, giving talks about sort of the state of the art when it comes to white hatting, and, and you're also working on your own new project now, correct? Yes. It turns out my bit last year, ETCC, was a, a rough overview of the attacks that had happened. I think we'd had like over 50 attacks that had appeared. Like last year was a particularly bad one for, for DeFi hacks and bridges in particular. And this one seems to be a lot more muted. And it had been commented on Twitter that it seemed that the pace had slowed down a bit. So people are starting to look in slightly more esoteric places, you know, which we will get to over the course of this chat. But uh, yeah, I, I never thought that my bit would be the attack becomes the commentator. But uh, here we are. Well, look, I think it's a line of work that uh, you're going to be able to make some. You're, you're going to make some good money in this industry for quite a while, as long as these uh, these smart contracts keep uh, getting hacked. So, let's maybe jump into it because I think actually there's a lot of different angles to the story, and it's one that touches on d- different stories that we've explored through previous episodes of the Chopping Block. So, for those of you who are not aware, one of the largest on-chain protocols in DeFi is called Curve. So it's an AMM, uh, it's an automated market maker that basically allows you to trade assets that are tightly pegged against each other, most commonly trading stable coins. So what happened over the weekend was that there was a hack of Curve 
And this hack particularly targeted these very old pools that were all deployed, um, I think, a couple years ago. One of them was uh, JPEG, PETH, Metronome, SETH, and Alchemix's uh, ALETH. So these three pools in particular, on, in total, it was on the order of about $40 million in total that were hacked. Uh, these were all third-party pools, so Curve allows you to have third parties deploy certain pools of their own configuration. Then there are kind of the core pools of like, you know, the three pool and whatnot, that those were not affected by this. And particularly the reason why these pools were affected is that they all used an old version of Viper. So Viper, for those of you who are not aware, Viper is a smart contract language that's written to be a competitor to Solidity that has more Python-like syntax, which is a little bit different than Solidity, which is kind of more Java, JavaScript-esque type language. And so this older version, now newer versions, actually all all of Curve is actually written in uh, Viper, but newer versions of Viper do not have this bug. It was fixed, I believe, in like 2011 or something. So the rest of Curve is not not, uh, vulnerable to this bug, but these older versions were. So this bug freaked people out because Curve is one of the most, you know, well-known, longest-standing, stalwart protocols in DeFi. And it's actually one of the largest protocols in DeFi by TVL. Uh, at the time of the bug, it had about $3 billion in total assets in Curve. And in large part, as a result of the panic that set in after people realized this bug took place, half of all the the capital in Curve has pulled out. Curve is now down almost 50% of all of the assets in Curve, meaning $1.5 billion was withdrawn from Curve over the last, call it 48-ish hours. Let me, let me, let me pause there because I think for a lot of folks, uh, they may not understand the contours of what it means when to say that there was a, a bug in a smart contract language or in a compiler, uh, a lot of people have been pointing fingers and saying, oh my God, you know, how did Curve mess this up? Like what, what a, you know, why, why aren't these people, why are these people asleep at the wheel? Because this bug was a reentrancy bug. Reentrancy is a very long history in crypto as being, you know, famously the bug that took down the DAO. Uh, it's a bug that keeps rearing its head over and over again. So Lawrence, could you explain for us, one, help us understand, you know, how Viper and this bug fits into it and what people mean by reentrancy. Can you just, can you walk through that for us? I think there's probably going to be better resources than me to talk about the nature of what reentrancy is, but basically, you know, kind of reentering a function more than once in the same call. I think this one's particularly interesting because as you say yourself, right, when people talk about uh, reentrancy being a root cause for hacks, um, it's, it's very common, right? It stretches back five years, six years. And this is for the most part, if you're dealing with topics that, you know, modern uh, approaches for things, it's, it's a solved problem. In this particular instance, so as, as you mentioned, Curve is written in Viper, and there are three particular versions of the Viper release, uh, I think 2.15, 2.16, and 3, which had um, an issue in the way that one of the most common ways of preventing re-entrancy is to just have a modifier that's just re-entrancy lock, which just says, you know, I'm, I'm executing a bunch of code. There is no more re-entrancy allowed here. You can't re-enter into things. Um, but the most part, if you rely on that, then it's an assumption that you make and, and you're fine. You, you know, you go in, you, you execute code and then you're out. The way that it looked on a much lower level uh, for Viper here in these three particular versions is that the storage slot, the, the, the part in the smart contract that looks at whether or not you're in a lock or not, was reading and writing for, or was reading from the wrong place. So it would say, here's where I'm like storing my status and then I'm reading somewhere else. Um, to look and go, this is, you know, am I in a lock or not? And your answer would always be no, because you're not looking at the place that says temporarily yes. This was fixed um, in Viper 3.1, 
which was released, I think, December 2021. So this is a zero day that's lived and died two years ago, you know, where this is, it's ancient history in crypto terms. The part about it that's uh, some people are starting to point um, some fingers about, I think wrongly, in my opinion, is that when it was fixed, um, the, the way that it was dealt with was fix allocation of unused storage slots in the releases. It didn't have a flashing highlight that said, hey, there's a bug here. There's something that like needs to be dealt with and like reach out to people. And you can kind of do that for the curve because it's a smaller alternative language um, for the EVM. If it was um, something in Solidity, for example, you would have a much harder time because you'd have to reach out to everyone. You know. For for Viper, you've got you've got Curve and you've got Yearn, and there's a couple of forks. Of course, if you're just reading the release notes and you see there's no urgent no urgent flag, then you go, okay, well, let's you know, there's, there's it's fine. I, I don't need to upgrade. And for the most part, if you're writing smart contracts and deploying them, you don't necessarily want to push um, to redeploy things or upgrade them to the most recent language any uh, version of your compiler anyway, because they're bleeding edge. That there, there might be things that haven't been discovered yet. There's a couple of strange qualitative questions that come around when things like this happen. I think this is the first time that we've seen a wave of bugs all around the same kind of topic based on a trust assumption. And whilst we all say trust, don't verify here in crypto, when you are looking at things that are lower down the stack than the language you're programming in, you know, when you're looking a layer beneath at the thing that translates things to the EVM, you assume, and I think assume is a bad word here, but we do, that everyone working closer to the bytecode knows what they're doing, right? And we're human. I, I worked as a compilation engineer. I know how this goes. There's some interesting questions that are coming around right now about, okay, so you know, who's who was responsible? Is anyone? Is everyone? How do you resolve this going forwards? Um, do, does this mean there should be more financial incentive to look at the lower stack, layer 0.5, if you were to consider the compiler to be that level? Um, if so, who's paying that? VCs don't necessarily see a return on that, even though it falls under their stack. Um, developers, perhaps, but you know, developers will often be the ones taking external funding. It's a really fascinating conversation that I think has only just started. And I think we'll see this roll over the next month, six weeks or so. A curious comparison is, you know, if we look at the most successful commercial compiler in history, it's by far NVIDIA's compiler at this mm -hmm. point in terms of dollars managed. Uh, or dollars that are kind of using That's it. Like, yeah. And it's kind of interesting that people had tried to make open source compilers, including Intel, ATI, AMD, et cetera, for, for graphics processors for a long time. And it, it somehow got beat by the proprietary one. I think an interesting question is what's the equivalent here? It won't necessarily be that it will be a proprietary compiler, hmm. but there'll be someone who has some sort of like market Let's not say monopoly. It's probably more like a monopsony where they have some sort of like indirect network effect that yeah. ensures that they get most of the order flow of some form. And the monopsony is sort of intent, you know, kind of in incentivized to, to fund this type of stuff. I don't think that, to be honest, like the Ethereum Foundation or people who are doing consensus stuff care that much about this. Um, it's sort of like, well, we gave you Solidity. You want to make another language, go fuck off, right? Which is like not. It's unfortunately for better or worse. Did that is Vitalik? Yeah. Wasn't Vitalik involved in the development of Viper? In the beginning. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. No, everyone wants other languages. his idea, if I recall. Everyone wants other languages. No one wants to maintain other languages. That's where <laughs> this the fight so comes true. in, right? Yes. The key thing is that all of the funding, if you look at the funding from the, the base protocol, most of it is like Viper's got a couple little grants, but it's mainly going to Solidity 
development verification. Yeah. What was the E2 deposit contract written in, right? The initial version, the, te- the test was in the background. But you know, my, my point is that th- there is this concentration effect. And this is one of these things where, you know, I kind of, I know there's a, there's a very heated battle amongst protocol engineers, but there's a battle over whether it's a good idea to have many clients for a particular blockchain or whether you should just have one. Because if you have many clients and there's an error that all of them have, that is something that's outside of the specifications of the client. Well, it's possible that they each implemented the error slightly differently. And then you Mm. get these kind of like production bugs that look way crazier than if everyone was running the same client. And we, we actually have seen a couple of those in the E2 beacon chain, but, but I I guess there's always going to be this kind of, kind of fight. I think the place I'm more convinced will be the actual funding source for like compiler security. Ironically, is going to come from from a lot of ZK stuff because ZK circuits are much worse in terms of security vulnerabilities in some ways than the raw code because you need the code to execute correctly as well as the the proof and they have to be synchronized and there's lots of ways they can they can stay out get out of sync and in some ways there, if there's more value locked there I could see that being the the place that I mean funds there's it. something to be said there for then perhaps money fund like funding flowing to Languages such as Solidity and Viper, like in the process of say verifying a transpiler, down to something that works for zk. You know, I mean that that's around the houses way of doing it. But I think you raise a really good point. We talk so much about client diversity on the execution and consensus layers, and then we kind of seem to have accepted that um, for the most part, if you're writing code, you should be learning some JavaScript and you should be doing it in Solidity. And I I can see from a cynical business perspective why that makes sense. You know. Will be it for the you know a catastrophic consequence if something like this was found in in Sol C, and there's part of me that goes we should have more languages we should be more diverse and yeah it turns out it's very much the yeah show me the incentives I mean yeah your your PhD is in Haskell right <laughs> <laughs> I mean I will admit the last time I looked at anything compiler level for um to, um the EVM was HEVM so like yeah I, I very much have uh, qualifications in this regard so uh, yeah I, I have opinions. Um, I don't think we should be uh, doing a compiling from a Haskell DSL down and making it mainstream. But I, I think we should have more. But as we see, even two is causing something of a, a stoppage in the dam of where funds go and you know what goes where. I think this is weirdly an argument perhaps for, um, I, this is the first time I've thought this through, you know, we talk about things like um, where Ether's burned to, I don't know, set aside a little bit of it for that, for uh, for ecosystem development. But that raises a whole bunch of weird questions about who's doing the development, you know, who stewards the funds. Oof. Is this a uh, is this a plug for uh, what's that that chain that has sort of the, the like the dev uh, fund Kanto built CSR. in? I was, I was I was I was explicitly not going to say CSR, but like you know, it's, yeah, yeah. it's the kind of idea spiritually similar. We like expenditure as public good, and where you are. Given how much people get angry about any time I mention them on here, I'm just going to say <laughs> no comment. Yeah, <laughs> it's good to see you all. Yeah, to to your point, I don't think it's a uh, uh, philosophical like oh we need you know, more languages or, or, you know, yeah, fewer clients or, or whatever. Um, I think it's more like a funding and sort of incentives problem, right? Like this kind of reminds me of, um, kind of like, 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 you know, like the log forge, um, uh, you know, vulnerability from like two years ago or like, yeah, yeah. or like kind of like that, that, you remember like that, that there's an XKCD comic of like, you know, sort of the modern stack and there's a one little egg and it's like, 
you know, some library maintained by like a dude in Kansas and like thanklessly maintained by a guy in Nebraska since 2005. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, comparison with like the NVIDIA compiler, it's like, yeah, well, obviously you have, you know, a multi-billion dollar company maintaining this thing. There's sort of different incentives and different, uh, uh, capacities to do so. And so, yeah, I mean, a couple of dudes who are maintaining, uh, uh Viper, like, yeah, they're, they're, they probably don't have the resources to, uh, you know, thoroughly test and, and produce, um, as production grade. Not to, not to show that, but I think overall it's and, but, Yeah, exactly. I was about to say, like, it's kind of a valiant effort to try to run one of these fork languages, right? You, you're like, you have no support. You kind of like, you you generally have a smaller team. There's going to be technical issues where you can't be one-to-one with the main language that's supported. And then the tooling doesn't really support you. It kind of like will like do the bare minimum so that, hey, I can deploy my contract, but all the security tooling won't support you or, you know, and, and that and that in and of itself gets to a bunch of nuanced issues. But the reason you should be worried about these types of bugs is they're very insidious in the sense that like if you find one, they affect many places all at once at the mm-hmm. same time, which is very different than most smart contract bugs, which are usually isolated. Yeah. Now. Of course, there's going to be a ton of people who are, you know, like, hey, why don't you use my particular blockchain? We have these particular. Oh, yeah. Our one is safe by construction. And you hear it eight. You see, like, okay, chief. Which is never quite true. Never <laughs> quite true. <so. laughs> but this, this is one of the points that I also made on Twitter, um, which is that, like, whenever you see something like this, regardless of whether or not you put the, the blame at the feet of the developers, um, there's going to be some sense of like, okay, why did you get cute? Why didn't you just use Solidity and kind of sit in the, the, the sort of technological monoculture that it's like, look, Solidity just has the most eyeballs. It's the most battle tested. It's got the most, essentially it's got the biggest bounty on finding something broken such that if there was some zero day sitting in the, in the wings, it would have been found much earlier than presumably it would be for Viper, which basically has one big honeypot, which is Curve. Like, I, I don't think that assumption holds, right? Because there were enough people looking at Viper stuff and this stuff sat there for, for two years in the open, right? You just had to look back a little bit. Um, I mean, how many people can we do we know that we can say, like, hand on heart, know the Solidity code base? I've barely looked at it. You know, like, I, mm, I have my bugbears mm. about how it compiles and stuff, you know, like the VIR stuff. But, like, this was my shtick, and I, I barely know it myself. Um, of course, look. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. It's saying that I would blame the people. Yeah, I would yeah. blame the people who are using Viper. But I mean, this like Curve now has to answer this. Whether you know, some people are going to give them the benefit of the doubt, as as you just did. Um, some people won't, and some people will think like, "Wow, you know, I'll just use Uniswap from now on." Like, I don't even want to fuck with Curve because who knows what other mistakes they're making, or who knows if Viper is at all secure, given that this bug has been sitting around for two years and they never, you know, had the the, the foresight to be able to notice that hey. There's $60 million sitting or you know, whatever, $40 million sitting on this old version. And in absolute terms, right, $40 million on this old version of Viper is not a big bounty, right? There are, I mean, that's like a very minor protocol, you know, sitting on, you know, page two of, of DeFi Llama. Um, <laughs> that, that's not a place where I'd expect a lot of eyeballs to be, yeah. to be poured over. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe it's not surprising that it took two years for someone to figure out that, hey, there's this reentrancy bug. Like, I'd be fascinated to see the process by which it finally came out. You know, did someone finally decompile something old and see it? You know, it's, 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 it's. Or were they just fuzzing? Yeah. Expect, yeah, yeah, yeah. Expected translation unit versus 
deployed translation unit yeah. they found. No, you, mm. you could totally see like that type of thing accidentally working. Yeah. And you're just like brute force and you didn't have to think that hard. And then you're like, oh, okay, this must be the reason. Because it's like once you see, uh, uh, it's like if you're doing parallel programming and you see like a lock or a mutex not working, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you know that part of your code is broken. So yeah. it, it, it's, there's so many ways that it could have been found. But I, I think the the other point, I guess this brings is like this is a problem that does occur a lot in security like you do run into these compiler bugs it's just that they've never ever been quite as high stakes i think like the the idea that the high stake compiler bug lasts forever in a blockchain versus you know high stakes compiler bug my code is running and constantly being changed it's local it's not this is a very different modality of like what's yeah. It goes to the assumptions about mutability, right? Like the idea that, okay, this thing should be immutable kind of assumes that there's never a reason to change the bytecode, even if the solidity code corresponding to it is the same or the, or the Viper code corresponding to it is the same. That sort of assumes that the compiler is always correct and there's no reason why you, one might ever need to swap that out, which you wouldn't make in any other environment. It's yeah. only really in crypto that we kind of bake this assumption in from the very beginning, uh, uh, is that uh, uh, as long as this is the solidity not code... Not true. Spacecraft. Aeros- like, aerospace stuff does do the same thing, where it's like, you mm. make it once and you like, ship we it. We had something that was built in the 80s and that it's works just yeah, fine. Yeah, and okay, we're still yeah, getting right. signals from right. it. Yeah, it, it, There are, there are like mission-critical technologies that end up And being that's like where this. they do, and when they do in space, they do like the um, multiple Waterfall. versions of the same um, thing yeah, that are implemented redundant. in different mm. uh, languages, right? Exactly, and they do like some... Byzantine fancy stuff between them in case they're slightly what is different. It, like bit flips? Bitwise, they're not bitwise well, identical. In some but way. also from cosmic rays, I, I read about this. Also in case cosmic rays like flip the flip bits in the uh, instruction set or whatever. So I think I think you just have to have that mindset, which ends up meaning mm. you can't move as fast. And you know, I think that's sort of why blockchains are interesting in that they 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 bring like some people who are of the like move fast always, break things, don't care mindset with people who are like absolutely not this is like a immortal tomb that you can never desecrate and has to be written perfectly up front right whereas in aerospace it's like you always treat it like the latter and in the rest of tech you always treat it like the former somehow you're interpolating between the two like it's weird um yearn um ended up being one of the latter because you know a lot of their stuff was in viper but they pinned to an ancient version of um viper and i I don't know to this day if this was you know kind of just laziness and not wanting to go this will do you know, like we, we don't need it to change that much. The thing that changes is the strategies. And those are often yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. One interesting thing, another framework to think about it is like, if I take the sets of types of vulnerabilities in normal software development, like I take, you know, just normal code execution bug, like logic doesn't match what it's supposed to. I take like environment execution bug, like I found a way to get into something that's talking to that program and has privileged access and can, can change it. And then you have sort of like supply chain attacks, like code that the a particular piece of code depends on is itself, you can kind of mutate it in place. In normal software development, no matter how much every year, like probably once a year, I've, I read some post or something that's like NPM, which is the main package manager in JavaScript and like every single web application somewhere in the world you eventually uses it, except for like very esoteric web stuff. NPM people are always like, oh, NPM has tons of supply chain attacks. And, and, you know, yeah, every once in a while, there's like a little thing that like fishes you or like, you know, like some type of browser extension that fishes you or something like that. 
certainly, you know, board ape owners have been uh, a recipient of such attacks <laughs> in the right, last with this, years. With this one NPM package. Uh, yeah, no, I think that like some some of the craziest <laughs> phishing attacks end up coming this way. Yeah, yeah. But supply chain attacks to a normal software developer, if I if I ranked all of those, they're probably like in the bottom 20% of mm-hmm. security things. They're they're yeah. not they're not anywhere near the top 10. But this says that in crypto they have to be in your top 3. Yes. Easy, easy. Because your compiler is effectively your your entire like your, your supply chain. chain. Like, yeah, it is. Like that is the whole chain. Yeah. Uh, also, it, it, it occurs to me that some people might not know what a compiler is. So maybe before we, I, I want to move on a little bit, but let me just quickly explain what a compiler is. Yep. So when you write code, uh, you write code in a high level language, like Solidity is one we often talk about. Viper is this other one that we were just referring to that was involved in this attack. Um, but Ethereum itself does not understand that high level code. That high level code is written to be easily understood by humans. But what, uh, what Ethereum understands is much lower level instructions like add this, move this over here, flip these two bytes, whatever. And these instructions, which are called bytecode or, or often called machine code, these instructions have to be translated from the higher level language to the lower level language. And that's what a compiler does. It basically turns this higher level language into this lower level language. And that's where the bug was that caused this uh, reentrancy attack in, in Curve. Uh, and that's why we're talking so much about supply chains. Now, part of what I want to discuss here as well is about communication around security vulnerabilities, because that was also a lot of the drama that I was seeing on Twitter was not just that, okay, this thing went wrong and money was stolen, but also the way in which this ended up getting divulged yeah. seemed to have made things worse. And I, and I know a lot of security people have had strong opinions about the way in which people communicate about vulnerabilities in blockchain, because it's not the same as it is in other domains. Um, do you want to speak to this a little bit, Lawrence? Yeah. So like, you know, often when these things happen, we don't have time to file a CVE. We don't have time to, you know, like we, we often, if you're dealing with anonymous teams, you can't even find a contact to speak to. And when there's something that's active in the wild, not neutralized, I think, um, it's, it's just incredibly silly to talk about. I think Bantech talked about this, like, do not talk about live vulnerabilities until completely mitigated. And there are a couple of, um, uh, companies and you know like security order places that I, I gen generally respect who um did the whole hey just by the way here's a thing that's happened i think the first one that was it was jpegged this is an active problem with viper here are some other places that are affected by the same thing and i just made in my hands and alchemix was attacked three minutes later if you replicated that thing to start with it does not take you three minutes to just point at different addresses and and head into a private mempool. It was, I think that's the thing I'm angriest about in this. Like I, I, I said on Twitter that it was, it was clout adult stupidity hitherto unseen. And I I can see Mm. similarly the argument to go, people should know. I'm like, no, they probably shouldn't. I think that maybe 30 minutes of silence while people worked out and let people argue. I, I realize I'm being a little bit contra to my, everything should be transparent, but as soon as you make that transparent and it's gone, there's an argument for saying just, I don't know, in a Telegram war room, we have Telegram chats for this. We have ETH security. Um, people are probably- How, can, can, you, can you take us a little bit behind the scenes, Lawrence? When, when something like this happens, okay, let's say, boom, you hear that uh, cur- you know, something has been compromised, Viper, blah, blah, blah. No one knows exactly what's happening. There's fog of war. What happens? Like, What is the chain reaction that happens behind the scenes that results in the Telegram war room? And who's in there? The funny thing is, I'm not going to give you the answer you want, mostly because the process of talking this means I will never be invited to another one. 
Um, <laughs> like, I mean, that, that is how it is. Right? Okay, see, got it, there got are it. Telegram channels which exist and things form very quickly between as soon as you realize, you know, if it's a library that's affected or a particular protocol, there's generally someone that's kind of proficient. There are some people now that handle like the generalist side of things. Um, hmm. like, you know, like, okay, like we, we need to start communicating people. We need chain checkers, et cetera. Uh, uh, that, that's as much as I'm going to give you simply because I like helping out where I can. And if I get told you're going to media and saying, then that's it for me. Got it. So there's a, <laughs> there's a code of silence among the people who are sort of the, no, I, it's weird because code of silence isn't the right thing to do, but like, you certainly don't want to say to anyone that would be kind of acting in a malicious way. Be like, okay, if I do this, this is the timer that I have. Like, this is the playbook that I need to kind of be right, working right. contra to. No, I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of poking <laughs> fun. Uh, I, I, th- I think w- what's clear, I think, to most people who have who have been in the space long enough, is that you know there, there's a group of folks, uh, presumably you're you're one of them, who are these kind of security people and white hats who are kind of at, at on call, basically when something goes wrong on chain figure out what can we do to mitigate what, what is affected, what's not affected. How do we communicate this to the right parties and make sure that everything kind of happens. It's, 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 it's a weird kind of distributed Ethereum defense team uh, that often it's, it's the same players who show up and and, uh, are on call to try to mitigate these things. You flatter me. I wouldn't necessarily call myself one of them anymore simply because I find myself busy with a child nowadays. But like I said, as, as you say, right, there are, there are people that, are around and are willing to help. And so like there is a, there are security telegrams, I think often within seconds of like a, a peck shield tweet going up, there, there are people chatting. Um, often like, you know, there are protocols that are working in, in the back noticing and like, you, you see it appear in like six places at once. If it's something known big. One thing, one thing I would point out though, is that um, I think you kind of need this radio silence more for these supply chain attacks. Mm-hmm. Because remember, these supply chain attacks are like, if it's a bug of a cert- that form, every single thing that's ever been built with it is vulnerable at the same time. Versus if it's a specific protocol, then it becomes something more like, oh, well, all the forks are vulnerable. And maybe mm-hmm. the forks are just like, it's like harder to do the attack because of the deployment. You know, there's a lot of like kind of nuanced reasons. Whereas when it's a supply chain thing of like, this particular thing is always true for anything created in this way then it becomes like much more, much more, much yeah. more, much more. You know, and, and to, to speak to that, I think we can, to the degree that you can consider something like this, which is awful and shouldn't have happened, lucky in the sense that like the blast zone was effectively constrained to two major protocols of which one of them, you know, was um, out of the picture because of an older version of the compiler. Right. So, Let's um, let, let's let's continue on the story. So just to just to kind of recap where we are so far. So uh, you know these old pools and curve were compromised because of this reentrancy bug, almost instantly because of somebody going on Twitter and basically saying, "Oh, hey, look at this! This is happening on chain, and everything that uses the same compiler version seems to also be vulnerable, including these other protocols." Very quickly, you had a bunch of folks jumping in and exploiting basically everything that was vulnerable um, within minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that's happening on chain as kind of this on-chain background radiation is uh, this, this phenomenon we call generalized front running. And so generalized front running uh, is, is basically when you have these folks who are monitoring the mempool, looking for transactions that may make money in any possible way. They simulate that transaction as though they were the person submitting the transaction instead of the actual person submitting the transaction. And if it'd be profitable for them to do so, then they automatically will submit that transaction and try to go faster than you. 
So, they, so if you if you make a trade that's going to be profitable, they'll try to front run the trade. And that also means if you're going to hack something, and that hack would be profitable, as all hacks are, uh, or most hacks are, I guess, <laughs> the useful ones, um, then they will do the hack instead and front run you on the hack. And because they're doing this automatically, most of the time these um, these generalized front runners they don't know what they're doing. They're yeah. just, it's just running while they're you know at you know they're at a ball game or they're asleep or they're whatever and this thing is just like doing whatever it's doing on the background. And so we had a very interesting MEV day uh, where a, some generalized front runners ended up picking off some of the some of the hacked funds that were otherwise being targeted by uh, presumably uh, copycats. Lawrence, did you did you get a, a sense of what was going on here and, and how how that story played out? I'd been busy watching and talking to some people at some of the other effects protocols like Alchemix when I realized that Curve had been um, hit for the first time. And uh, then I noticed that, uh, is it Coffee Babe? Uh, God bless Coffee Babe, by the way, if you ever watch this, um, had uh, intercepted, I think, 5 million um, out of the uh, out of the Curve attack. I think one of the things that, before I go a little bit further into this, I think one of the things that I find really fascinating, um, and I, I say this a lot on Twitter, is that it's incredible that it's still basically a coin flip between whether someone who's performing an incredibly complex attack, be it at the protocol level, or be it as we have here somewhere less than that, you know, maybe someone's aped the vector, whether they have the sophistication to change their Ethereum RPC to a flashbot thing or not. So, you know, you get people who are still going, <laughs> here is here is eight figures of, of crime that I'm about to do. Let me broadcast it into the public mempool. It's... It's one of these like incredible, like incredible skill, and then like, you know, robbing a bank and then like stopping at the red light. It's 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 baffling to me. I mean, I'm grateful that they're doing it because we have wonderful situations like you have searches that are intercepting these things. And as people will have seen, I think there was a lot of chat about oh, you know, MEV searcher Coffee Babe picked up a bunch of it, and, and others have as well. I think there's a lot of credit to other people as well, such as Pascal Cavasaccio and so on and so forth. I'm not going to name them all. Wonderful work who went, okay, you know, I've got this, I'm going to return it to, you know, the address of my thing, and then chat and say, okay, I've picked this up. Where does it go? And I think like uh, a large chunk of it has gone, you know, back to, I think Metronomes received a bunch back because um, they were here as well as Pendle. And um, I think like, I think there was, so hang on, it was JPEG, Metronome, Pendle, Alchemix, The Curve Pool, D-Bridge and Ellipsis were all hit. I think mm. a large, some of those were all like, you know, yeah, have it back. Which is great. Uh, I, I think this is a weird offshoot of white hattery, where someone has effectively sleepwalked into millions of dollars and just goes, "No, I'm all right, chief. You take it back." It it's, is. It is really beautiful, and in a way, it's a, it's a testament to the culture that Ethereum has. Mm. That you've got these people who are, you know, effectively kind of built from the same material. You might think as like hedge fund magnates who are you know, just ruthlessly out there competing every single day for every, you know, iota of expected value. But then when something really goes wrong, they're like, Hey, you know, everyone's got to, everyone's got to buckle up and, and defend ourselves against the, uh, the, the real attackers, which are of course the, the, the folks who are hacking this thing in the first place. So I thought it was, it was a beautiful little vignette. And also for those of, I, I imagine many folks have never heard of generalized front running. Um, but it, it, in situations like this, it ends up becoming an important part of the story. So, okay, let, let's move on to the, the financial part of the story. Okay. So, so far we've been talking about the, the technology, the, the mechanics. Story, I know, I know there's, there's, it's, it's such a, I love how multi-layered the story is, even though it's obviously a, a fucking tragedy, thing, yeah. but it, it, it's also a very teachable moment, I think for DeFi and, and, and cybersecurity on this taking place, obviously people pulled a lot of money out of curve and the value of CRV, the native token of curve went down quite a bit. 
Uh, and so it, you know, it, it dropped more than 20% over the span of, uh, you know, a day and a half. And if you remember from a previous episode of the chopping block, we talked about, uh, Michael Igorov, who is the founder of curve. And he has a very large amount of curve that he owns on chain against which he was borrowed a lot of money and purchased a lot of real estate in the real world. And so presumably uh, he is, you know, he has a limited liquidity profile given how much he's balling in real life. And as the value of this curve has gone down, in addition to just what's happened broadly with DeFi going down over the last year and, you know, uh, many of these tokens getting hit, um, he was already uh, extended pretty far in, you know, if if you recall, I think it was Ave at that time Mm -hmm. that originally he was uh, at the risk of getting margin called. Now, all of a sudden with the value of CRV going down 25% plus, and threatening to go down even more as not only are people worried about, oh my God, is there going to be some, you know, uh, death spiral that's happening here? But now the fear is, okay, will, will Michael Igorov, he, will he exacerbate that liquidity spiral causing CRV to just, you know, basically get, get vomited out into the market when his massive positions get liquidated? Um, it, it, what is that going to do to Ave? What is that going to do to Frax? which are all places where he's also borrowed a significant amount against his CRV holdings. Mm-hmm. So there was uh, basically a, a kind of mass contagion of fear uh, as, as CRV started getting hurt worse and worse as people started realizing this. And further, in some ways, you know, many people shorting CRV to try to facilitate this and bring it on and say, hey, you know, if, we just, if we just get it to hit this threshold, boom, we can kind of knock his uh, position entirely over and, and you know, kill CRV. What Michael ended up doing is he went... OTC, because of course there's nowhere near enough liquidity for all the CRV that he owns. Um, and basically, just struck up a bunch of CRV deals. I'm sorry. Well, not anymore. Now that the key not anymore. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Once upon a time, once upon a time, there were people willing to buy and sell CRV. Um, he ended up uh, striking deals with Justin Sun, DCF God, and DWF Labs, among among several others, uh, to basically sell them OTC big chunks of CRV to give him liquidity and pretty significant discounts to market with very small lockups so that he could repay a bunch of his debt and lower his liquidation thresholds. So I think now it's pretty safe to say that we're out of the woods on that front. Uh, last I saw his, uh, he was, he was pretty close to, uh, I want to say like the liquidation price was pretty close to like 40 cents. Yeah. Now it's closer to 30 something uh, just because he's repaid so much of his debt on Ave Fraxland and on Abracadabra, yeah. So, so I think he's. I, th- I think things are looking much safer now. Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. If anybody's has more up to date numbers, his, his biggest vault is on Ave and currently has a health factor of 1.69, which is much better than it was. Yeah. Yeah. The big issue though is he still owns so much of the circulating supply. Um, there's like 900 mil curve outstanding and he owns well, like three, 400 mil, something like that. <laughs> something so it's like, yeah, the, yeah. yeah it, it, you know, even if you, you know, get liquidated, like there's just no amount of, Where's of it going? Uh, bids. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. like, you know, in reality, you know, obviously three FC fixes this and, and then they can limit borrows per asset type. But like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a mutually assured destruction at this point. Tarun, I mean, given that you were um, involved with this Ave kerfuffle a few weeks ago, what, what's your take on this whole deleveraging situation? Yeah, you know, there's not too much, you know, uh, similar to Lawrence, it's actually still somewhat, uh, there's still things going on. So I probably will not say <laughs> too much. You could say, okay, um, got it. But I will say, you know, 
we've spent a lot of time making proposals uh, of trying to to mitigate this historically. Um, oh, is, it, is this an I told you so moment for you guys? No, I'm, I'm, this is more just a, hey, look, we've made these proposals. <laughs> we've gone through this before. <laughs> didn't quite. Oh, Gauntlet has sent this to you in the past. If you is had that, listened, if you had only listened to us, if you'd only no, listened to it's us. it's more like, you know, I, directionally it was correct. The Things are kind of consistent, but the, the point of a DAO is that, hey, the DAO can be like, we don't want to do that, right? So mm. anyway, I'll, you know, we put up another version of some of our old proposals. We're going to try to keep monitoring this. I mean, I think the emergency would have been if the Fraxland interest rate. So one thing that's worth noting is um, Fraxland. So uh, Michael had two big positions. Uh, of course, Ave is the biggest one. And then the second one is was Fraxland. Fraxland has sort of a PID controller style interest rates so the interest rate adjusts. So the longer the utilization is high, so the longer the funds are lent out, the more the interest rate goes up. The lower the funds aren't lent out, vice versa, um, with the idea that, hey, they keep increasing the interest rate, then they can bring down the utilization, which lowers the risk, right? So like imagine you're a, a lender in the real world. You know, you've lent out all your funds, but now you're worried that some of your risky borrowers are going to default. You may try to make the adjustable rates for your adjustable rate component go up because you want to compensate for those defaults. Um, so that that's sort of the the thesis of the way they're looking at this, uh, the way Frax Lend is designed. But the problem is, at the current time, they were at 100 percent utilization, so the the interest rate just keeps going up on its own, uh, and there is this cycle between the two loans where one would you in order to keep paying like one would be draining faster because the interest rates going up the other one's sort of constant ish um and you borrow against the the one that's constant to pay the one that's going up and that was where there was a lot of worry and cycles uh of the things that could go wrong so it was interesting to watch people trying to to hunt him on frax lend you know because the way that worked was yeah people would deposit curb they'd withdraw frax apy plus plus because of the pid and I think there's what, yeah, a couple of hours where people are just sitting there going like just watching ping ponging between the two, which I found fascinating. Like I mean, I, I have this like more qualitative thing, uh, question, you know, the the what if about you know, we, we talk about like the the nature of using these lending protocols that have long tail asset support for like the tax free leveraging of assets to borrow against them or the selling without doing as much and kind of saying that, you know, any bad debt that's incurred is not a me problem, it's a you problem. And I think today was the day where everyone kind of en masse responsible for things was like, Oh, the, it's a me problem. Like and actually started kind of like making efforts to to mitigate some of that. I said I, I think there were some pretty distasteful characters that were included in the OTC deals. Uh, like my my personal take on on, uh, on some of those people, which I found fascinating because it was uh, <laughs> um, you know at forty cents on the curve with a, a three six month handshake deal, or you can sell if it goes up to eighty cents, which I, I found fascinating as kind of like this this weird locked in situation between a bunch of like big money. About something which could be a massive headache for like for Ave in particular. I find that it's it's so strange. Like I mean, GCR clearly thought that something was going to go the way of the dodo because he added a bunch of Ethereum single sided on V3, like aiming at like three to seven cents per curve. I think. Like, I mean, that might be psyops. He's probably smart enough to know that wouldn't have happened with a liquidation because of Chainlink, the way that it's it weighted towards central exchanges. But it was certainly a weird moment to see that happen. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, 
I, I will say on the whole, I mean, it, it does seem like the saga is coming to a close now. I want to, I want to give just a few minutes for us to kind of take the kind of broader reflections on, on what it means. A lot of the people, I mean, it, it was, it was a wild 48 hours, I will say, uh, very entertaining and many different angles to the story, which is also part of what makes it so fascinating. Um, a lot of people were saying that like, oh, I mean, this, this kind of shows that DeFi isn't all that it was chalked up to be. And that it means you like, you can't really trust this stuff because, you know, Curve was one of the biggest and everyone trusted it and blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I do like to remind people that, look, I mean, the, the, the Curve pools that were affected were all a very tiny old pools that were kind of third-party pools. Um, you know, the, the, the main Curve pools themselves were completely unaffected by this. And on the whole, Curve had, what, 3 billion in TVL, of which, you know, roughly 30-something million was actually affected by this bug. Um, and so it is, and of course it, it, you know, pretty quickly people kind of came together, figured out what was wrong and, you know, with, with a few caveats here and there, uh, more or less got to getting everything else back in order. You know, the, 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 you know, we didn't get a CRV cascade. We didn't get a bunch of bad debt proliferating on a bunch of protocols. Like people kind of came together and worked together to, to help keep DeFi resilient and I thought that was a great example of, it's not always just about the mechanisms. People talk about that a lot in DeFi, that, oh, these mechanisms, they're you know, self-reinforcing, they're self-sustaining, they're super powerful. But a lot of it is really about how you build your, uh, your norms and the community and the culture. Uh, that's a lot of what kept DeFi safe, is just the instincts people had about communicating with each other and working together to, to, to help this problem from getting worse. I prefer another way of looking at it, which is... Uh in traditional finance, you can't really see all these positions. You know, I, in, in some ways, people are always like, oh, we should like have perfect privacy, private DeFi already. There's some sense in which you want these kind of bugs in public DeFi fixed for, or, you know, discovered and dealt with first before you ever get to private DeFi. In traditional finance, you already have the private thing, but because you can't really prove any properties of what people's positions are, you never really know if they're solvent or not. You never really know the liquidity, especially for more liquid things. So in that sense, you would not be able to identify, you know, the types of things we're talking about of like, hey, like someone is borrowing using their older loan to pay off their future loan until after it happens. And in some sense, that transparency is actually extremely useful for figuring out mitigations and also for you other users who are impacted by that. To, to adjust their strategies, which you can't really do in traditional finance, I would say. Like you're usually guessing what other users are doing. You're not knowing what other users are doing. There is, there is the trade-off though, right? Because we also talked about the, the adversarial nature of when, you know, when it's on chain, you can see the stop and you know like kind of how to hunt it down and you can spread FUD about this and that because everyone is kind of, you know, everybody was looking for, okay, what's the level that it's going to take for, you know, basically curve to have this kind of cascading uh, liquidation spiral. That is something that you wouldn't have in, in a completely private system. So there's there's pros and cons. It's not obvious to me which of those two is better, but it's pretty clear right now that, I mean, we're, we, it's not a choice in front of us, really. Uh, we, we kind of have to go. <laughs> I mean, DeFi is DeFi, and unfortunately, we don't, we don't really have a viable private version of it, at least not yet. Yeah. Listen, I, one of my like favorite analogies recently is talking about kind of flashbot RPCs as dark pools, the analogy of like TreadFi. And it'll be interesting to kind of see like, you know, the way in which kind of as we start getting kind of more base level privacy, the way in which stuff starts splitting off into different things. That's kind of a kind of an auxiliary interest of mine recently. 
Um, mm. And so, like, I mean, I'm working personally on trying to do stuff like bring kind of deals on chain and like kind of walking the walk in terms of DeFi and the degree to which I think maybe that just adds signal instead of noise is yet to be seen. I, I, it fascinates me, although I am uh, not as big brained as uh, people like uh, Tarun here who, you know, look at this stuff for a living. I, I would like to see more private DeFi, though. I mean, it, it is it is clear that, uh, especially for large players, I mean, Michael Igorov is per, probably, you know, the, the primary example of somebody who would benefit, at least from his perspective, from <laughs> from having some financial privacy. Yeah. Um, you know, having having viable forms of on-chain privacy, I think, would be a big boon to I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly players. not saying that, you know, obviously, I, 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 I should add some addendum. I, I, I certainly think it is necessary. Um, but two things to remember is finance is never, ever, can never be fully private. There always is some public information, mm-hmm. right? Like a price, a rate, a, something has to be public for people to trade on some set of metrics. And those metrics have to leak something about the, sure. the actual underlying assets. And so the, there's always this trade off. But the real question is, you know, how can you make these things stable? And I, w- I would rather learn the mistakes with the fully transparent public stuff before going fully to private. And yeah. I think that's, this is going to, you know, we have this now library of these mistakes that to avoid. Well, we have a library, but they've not been collated anywhere. That's the thing. Like I, I wrote last year that, you know, we, whenever we see um, an error like this, um, if it's novel, um, oh, sorry. If it, if it's old hat, like if it's a repeat of something, then everyone just gets like strips torn off of them. If it's novel, then people within like forty eight hours will confidently assert that anyone could have seen it, and only like the malicious or the novice would have overlooked it. We saw it even happen at the Dow. We've we've started seeing it now with the Viper um, incident. And I think I one thing I'd like to bang on about like is kind of someone, some group of us need to kind of like put the book together of the what do to not, you know, like a hitchhiker's guide to not getting wrecked at some level. And I don't think it's ever going to exist. So the, 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 the nature of security, much like the nature of finances, it's always this cat and mouse game. Yeah, of course. Whatever edge you have is it's hard to make public. So anything that gets written is always a bit post hoc. It, yeah. it like never yeah. is kind of can be written in the moment. And I, I think that's, in, that's sort of the thing you face here. But the transparency means that the documentation is there, right? Yeah. It's it's it, it exists, right? Just think about how many financial crises mu- must have existed in the world where there is basically no recollection or documentation mm-hmm. of the cause or the solution. Uh, I bet you there's a lot of those oh, in yeah. many countries. Sure. And in some sense, at least here, you have the, the chain as the, the form of reference forever. Yeah, I, uh, I think it would be very entertaining to read the histories of some of the, the big hacks in crypto. But I think to Tarun's point, it's kind of like, you know, it's like like rules are, are written in blood. And I think that's kind of true for, for crypto where, you know, after you know, any new novel hack, like people change their um, auditing practices and testing practices and security practices and what we sort of consider safe and stuff gets better over time. Even, even the concept of Viper having a library for less reentrancy guard, like, you know, it would have been a thing like, you know, uh, I guess it was like six, seven years ago. And, and so this stuff, like, as we sort of learn about different ways of attacking um, I think we sort of, you know, as an institution, um, build those sort of natural antibodies, but it's not uh, in, in a sort of implicit way instead of an explicit way. It, it did make me reflect, to be honest, that um, I feel like working in crypto this long has broken my brain because <laughs> on Monday, 
Well, I know. On Monday when I saw that curve was hacked and I was like, oh, shit. How much was it hacked for? And it was like, oh, 30 million. I was like, oh, it's fine. That's not the length okay. of my that's... phone number. I'm not yet. I sleep. It's, yeah, it's exactly. Exactly. And I, and I, yeah. Looking, back, looking back on this from like where DeFi started, when like literally all the money in DeFi was about $100 million, I don't know. It, it does feel like security has to get simpler. Like it can't be, I mean, to your, to your point, Tom, of like all of the, you know, the sort of uh, the earned knowledge that is kind of tribal and is, you know, the, the, the um, uh, you go through the maze of all the decisions you can make building a protocol. And at some of those corners, there's just, you know, bones of protocols that came before you that fucked up in that particular way. Yeah. Uh, it can't, it can't be that it's that tribal, uh, the knowledge of how to build things safely in, in DeFi, like that, that aspect of it has to get better. And I don't know, uh, I don't know how much easier it seems to be getting. It seems to me the answer is more and more that it's not easy and it's going to stay not easy. And instead we are just kind of uh, investing more and more eyeballs, resources, and security into the few protocols that are super, super secure. And everything else we're kind of, you know, it's 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 just caveat tour. And that ultimately means that there's, I mean, part of that is just that few things really have product market fit in DeFi. But the other side of it is that it's it's almost even harder for something new to get that product market fit when mm. there's such a gap in security between things like Uniswap and Curve and you know the the next protocol that that just is new on the block. Uh, if you had another hour to spare, I would uh, give you my um, soliloquy on uh, the uh, the tactics and techniques of uh, auditing firms in DeFi nowadays. But uh, I don't feel like getting cancelled by some of my friends, so I'll have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, now I really want to hear wait, that. Wait, 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 wait. We should really talk about the bald stuff, though. <laughs> should we? All right. Uh, that could probably fit in five minutes. Um, yeah, no, it's can. not that much. The bald is five minutes. I was just, I was right, just like looking at the clock, and I was like, the best story of this week is this the best okay Tarun, i'm gonna let you i'm gonna let you give the exposition for bald yeah. given that it's the best story as many of you know coinbase is launching a layer two protocol called base i believe on a prior episode of this here podcast i quoted a tweet that i saw that described it as binance smart chain for white people which got me canceled on linkedin but not twitter which should tell you everything uh, it's, it's also not wrong. How can you get was, canceled on LinkedIn? What does it even mean? Just people being like, this is so People like unconnected with you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. well, no, no, no. Laura, I believe Laura posts these on LinkedIn. I remember I saw some comments that were like, okay, got it. I don't know if they were got like it. directly in her, in her thing or some other thing, but I, I think got, she doesn't tag being, me on them, which I'm very grateful for. I, I kept getting tagged in these things of like, this intense. I was like, hey, I'm just reading someone else's tweet. I think it was a tuba <laughs> special. I'm pretty sure it was him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, nice. And, and so base has been launched in sort of like developer only mode, like, you know, the chain exists, you can sort, you can bridge onto it. Uh, layer twos that are optimistic, of course, have this withdrawal period. So you, you may have to wait to get money back. Um, but um, I guess in honor of the fact that the people who have are in trials with the sec are bald or the ones who win, I forget exactly what the meme is. Do you guys know? Well, why is Brian Armstrong? Got to be got to be confident when the guy at the top is bald. That bald is like yeah, strong. I mean, there's a great right. meme like like like, 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 like 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 you are with this show with Hasib, right? You're very confident. In, yes, in our, exactly, right? exactly. Uh, Never uh, trust the head of hair in crypto. So someone made a meme coin called bald, 
and they deployed it. And of course, we had this fervor of 50, 60 million dollars moving into base, which sort of un- it was meant to be a developer test net, not totally meant for real funds. Um, but you know, you can't stop the apes when they ape. So all this money went in. And then the the deployer developers sort of rug pulled the the people in some ways. Uh, I think there's still debate as to how much of that is true. But once that happened, you know what happened was what always happens in these crypto scenarios where something awry happens, whether it's the curve thing, whether it's this. There's this community of these people on the internet who are just constantly sleuthing and trying to figure out like what they can about an entity, an address, a set of assets on the internet. And uh, it turned out the bald deployer is uh, very connected to, had done a lot of seven-figure trades with Alameda, uh, had made a lot of posts on the DYDX forums about how they should change their incentives, uh, had clearly been doing algorithmic yield farming for a while, uh, and not like manual, you could tell from some of the rebalance moves. And it was sort of a, a thing that was like, this is a more sophisticated person. How are they so dumb to deploy off this address that has so much provenance? Then that led, of course, to the natural SBF deployed it <laughs> uh, meme, which I don't think is true. No, I don't. Um, but there are, of course, a ton of ex-Alameda employees who could have very easily been this entity. And that's that's where I suspect it is. Uh, so well, did I miss uh, anything? Did I miss anything? Uh, well, the deployer has come back now, posted, I think, about an hour and a half before this. I realize you've got your, your hard stop. Has come back now saying, as soon as there's another DEX that works, we're going to put more liquidity back, and any profits are going to effective altruism, uh, uh, like non-profits. No, you said to non-profits. Yeah, to non-profits. non-profits. Not effective non-profits. altruism, That's non-profits. Great, because I'm not profitable, so I'm looking forward to getting paid <laughs> yeah, by an yeah. Alameda associate. But, uh, of course, I mean, this is this is psyops. You can't fool me. I am familiar with your game. Uh Bull deployer. It's uh, well. It's, the best part was I think there was another meme coin launch today called Hair, which is <laughs> yes. doing quite there well. Was, there was also fuck balls. That yeah, there there were loads. Fuck ball was a honeypot, um, and then of course like leaked itself went down because of an exploit because it was solidly fork code. It's it's been an auspicious start for Base's developer only mode. Um, I'll say that much. Oh, I don't understand how a developer only mode. How you can ape into a developer-only mode? They like, just made it harder. Mean? They just made it harder. There's no UX, whatever. It, it, it is. It is functionally running. It's yeah. just that okay. there's no none of the creature comforts of like easy to do from MetaMask. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, you, you just have to send bridge. these direct to a contract on mainnet, and it would do a self-transaction. And you're like, well, that's not a barrier. I this, remind, this, like, this, this, remind, this whole thing reminded me of when uh, during 2021. In the peak bull bull market, there were like all these TikTok influencers teaching you how to use change your RPC to Binance Smart Chain and like go farm <laughs> things on Binance Smart Chain. Like, what, what was the thing that that had a safe moon? Yes, right? I think that was mm. one of them. <laughs> oh God, we, we need a safe moon on base. I'm telling you now, boy. I mean, I some, mean someday you're going to be telling your kids about the days when you had to manually change your RPC uh, to uh, to use another chain. I'm going to get called a boomer because I... Do, do we sound like the people who talk about the dial-up sound? You know? <laughs> I feel like... Yes. Yes. Wait, that that yeah. is absolutely who we are. That I, is absolutely got, who we are. I got into a discussion with someone the other day in like the era pre-flashbots about using gas price auctions to get into stuff and that it was all public. And someone, yeah, I got called a boomer on chain. This was devastating to me. <laughs> oof, oof. 
You live long enough. You live long enough. <laughs> With that, I think okay. uh, I think the boomers got. Well, we didn't. Sleep. We didn't yeah. even get a chance to talk about Hex getting sued by the SEC, but maybe um, maybe we'll we'll cover that at some point. But for now, uh, we got we got to log off. Thank you, everybody, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, Lawrence. Hey, everybody. Yes, everyone. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.